This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I think when we get too focused and we put all of our compassion on the person on the side of the road who needs our help, we lose our focus about who might need us next week, and we really lose our focus about how in the world we're going to be good enough to one another that our relationships don't distract us from our call on the journey. This is a podcast about two things helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to the Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague, Jamie Ayton, and our producer, Laura Finch. And today we're thrilled to be talking with Suzanne Stabile, internationally recognized Enneagram expert and author. Her newest book that we'll be talking about today is The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. Suzanne, we're so grateful that you're with us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be with you. Uh, We're so looking forward to talking, and many of our listeners will be familiar with the Enneagram, and I know some will be very much into it. Jamie knows the Enneagram really well. I figured with you and our listeners, I couldn't pretend uh, and don't want to get caught pretending. So I can confess I don't know it as well as him, as some people listening. Uh, but for those who are either you know not as familiar or new to it, can you just as an introduction, really briefly say, you know, what is the Enneagram? You know, and what is it that it contributes? Like, what are the basics that will help us to go into a conversation like this? Um. All right. Uh, The Enneagram is an ancient spiritual wisdom tool that has been found in every faith belief globally. And it is about nine different ways of seeing and processing information. And so um, we all fit into one of the nine ways. People get a little nervous about being put in a box. I tell them that I'm just showing them the box that they're already in. (laughs) And um, certainly with all the complexities that make up the way we all find ourselves to be in the world, the reality is that the way we see and the way we process what we see determines how we use what Maurice Nicole defined as the three centers of intelligence, which are thinking, feeling, and doing. Mm -hmm. And in reality, we are all uh, using most of the time two of the three. And we predictably uh, take in information and then immediately respond with the question, either what do I feel, what do I think, or what am I going to do? And we can make it through life using two of the three, but it's much healthier and we will be able to be more clear about what is ours to do if we're able to use all three. And finally, I would say that the Enneagram answers Paul's question, why do I do the very things that I don't Mm -hmm. want to do? 
Well, you know, hearing you share about those different um, those different roles and how they come into play, you know, most of those who are listening are listening because they're wanting to learn how to do good better. And so you were talking about how oftentimes we tend to rely on just maybe one or two of those approaches. But curious, how, how can we use the Enneagram to be able to do good better? Um, well, I'll, I'll give you an example of one Enneagram type or Enneagram number, and I'll use mine. So I'm a two on the Enneagram, and I'm kind of a do-gooder. That's kind of what we do. We uh, don't take very good care of ourselves, but we make our way in the world by uh, figuring out what other people need and then trying to meet those needs. The problem with that is that um, sometimes I get involved in doing things that aren't mine to do. So if I use the example of Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, probably Martha had my same Enneagram type. And um, for theologians who might be listening, please just take a deep breath. I'm, I'm married to a theologian, but I'm not one. And my take on the story is that Jesus is coming to Lazarus' house for dinner and Mary and Martha are there and Martha's in the kitchen preparing everything. She's prepared the house and she's preparing the food and she's tired and she's aware that Mary and Jesus are in the other room talking and that Mary has the opportunity to be learning from him. And uh, Martha, like any two, goes in and says to Jesus, I'm in there trying to do all these things to take care of you. And Mary's just here sitting, listening to you. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better part. My husband's a lectionary preacher, and that means I get to hear that gospel story every three years. And what I've learned is that uh, Martha really thought that she was serving God by cooking and cleaning and doing all of those things. But sometimes we think we're serving God when we're really serving our own needs. And I think that um, our inability to, uh, first of all, know what is ours to do. Secondly, to have the faith to know that if we uh, step up to do that, we, we will have what we need. And finally, to uh, know that that call may not come again. And so we have to be very careful in our awareness that the best protection from the next word of God is the last word of God. Hmm. So the Enneagram, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but the Enneagram helps me by teaching me that I have to bring up thinking, which I, I'm, I'm a, not a productive thinker, I'm a relationship thinker. And I have to bring up thinking in order to ask the question, why am I moving toward this person? What, if anything, do I expect to get in return? And is this mine to do? Hmm. That's one example in one number, and we don't have time for me to do all nine. <laughs> no, that's, that's super helpful. Thanks for sharing that. And, and you know, one of the things as we work with our graduate students on is the importance of self-awareness as we serve others, being a reflective practitioner. And um, really appreciate how you frame that and talked about, about that and the way the Enneagram can can help us be more insightful about ourselves as it relates, like Jamie was saying, to how we do good better. Um, as we got ready to talk with you, we actually reached out to our students. We just heard from, a, from some of them who were able to get back to us 
quickly to ask them what numbers they are and wanted to that to do that and just interested to hear your thoughts if this resonates or what your experience would be with people who are doing work in just justice so like we do a lot of response to uh, and work with people who are in the helping professions like working in response to traumas and disasters mental health refugee work that kind of work um the people who responded we had the most answers of people who said they were nines eights and sevens um and was just would love to get your feedback on does that make sense to you we don't know if they responded most quickly or is that the kind of thing you see in kind of helping helping in justice professions as well uh, any thoughts on on who is attracted to doing this kind of work of 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 humanitarian and disaster work um and how that relates to the enneagram sure um it, it does make sense to me um Eights, nines, and ones, if I had to highlight which Enneagram triad is the one that is the most prone toward justice work, it would be the eight, nine, one triad. Um, Eights actually are the number that do and have always done a great deal of justice work. So I'm convinced that Martin Luther King Jr. was an eight on the Enneagram. Um, I, I would suggest that the reason they are is because when eights get up in the mornings and go through whatever practice is theirs or whatever pattern of behavior that's familiar to them so that they're listening, not too covered up with the happenings of the day yet. Eights question that they're asking themselves is, uh, I know that there's injustice everywhere and, and, I know it's my responsibility to address that. So how shall I do that? Nines are the people on the Enneagram who see um, two sides to everything. And in order for them to feel effective in the world, they have to address the side or the position that isn't dominant, and that is what calls them into justice work. In terms of sevens, sevens on the Enneagram are um, are always interested in change and in experiences over things and possessions. And so when a seven sees pain somewhere, Sevens actually don't like to deal with their own pain. They, they don't have a full range of emotions. They like to deal with the happy half. But when they see injustice, which brings up sadness or concern inside of them, then they want to address it. And they have enough of a, a creative spirit to believe that they can and that they can make a difference. And so they kind of add the energy to a group uh, of folks who are working together, who get tired and and who sometimes lose their focus by pointing out that there's always another opportunity and another day for us to do good better. It's really helpful to hear that breakdown that you just shared. And just curious, um, you know, when we think about the type of work that 
a lot of people who are listening to this, as well as our students or the work that we tend to do, that we're trying to do good, but oftentimes in these really incredibly stressful situations. And that's one of the things I just loved about your new book, Journey Toward Wholeness, the Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. Uh, just wondered if you could speak a little bit to those that um, maybe are in that gut triad and how what, what would you want them to know about doing good under lots of stress? What are the types of things they need to be thinking about or practicing in their own life? Well, the reality uh, is that um, in the modern Enneagram, at least, there is a lot of focus on the three centers of intelligence as named by Maurice Nicole. And those centers are thinking, feeling, and doing. And um, eights, nines, and ones are um, all persons who receive information by responding with what do I do? But after that, they divide in a way that has to do with which of the three centers is repressed. And for ones, uh, while the dominant center is doing, the repressed center is thinking. For nines, uh, they're both doing dominant and doing repressed means that they're always doing something, but it's not always what needs to be done. And eights are feeling repressed, and that means that they have passion for everything, but they count passion for other feelings when it actually doesn't cover the reality of those feelings. So what has to happen in the gut triad in terms of the people that you're working with is they each need to know what center they have to bring up in order to have a balanced approach to what they do. So for ones, um, at our center here, it's located on the property of a United Methodist Church. My husband's a United Methodist pastor, although we're no longer pastoring that church. And um, if someone comes to the door looking for a handout or for help of some kind while I'm teaching a workshop, um, everybody will behave according to their number. Uh, if we've had a meal and we have leftovers, then certain numbers will gather the food together. People will be visiting and asking questions and getting water, you know, all doing different things. But after the person who has sought and received help from us leaves, Enneagram Ones are the people in the room who are still asking themselves if they did everything that was theirs to do and that should have been done. And so ones have to be very careful with must and should and ought because that sometimes separates us from the wisdom of the Holy Spirit instead of connecting us to the wisdom of the Spirit. Eights are very aggressive. And because they're feeling repressed, they tend to rise to positions of leadership. They're very good in the kind of work that you do. So let me give you an example. My husband's a former Roman Catholic priest. And when I first started teaching the Enneagram, I taught lots of, lots of orders of priests and nuns. And uh, I taught a lot of men and women who were missionaries. And Many of them were eights on the Enneagram, which was a big surprise to me because it's the most aggressive number. But over the years, as I've learned the Enneagram, I've recognized that eights are the only people on the Enneagram who are put together in a way 
where they care deeply for the underdog and or for the person on the bottom. And they are the ones who also have the personality for confronting oppressors. Hmm. So they hold the tension between the oppressed and the oppressors in a way that no other number does. But when you do that without feeling, and when you move too quickly, and you don't bring everybody else who's committed but not your same personality type along with you, then you've missed what we're called to do in community. Nines are... um, the number on the Enneagram that people like and intuitively trust immediately the most. And they are bridge builders because their way of seeing uh, insists that they see at least two sides to everything. And so if you put together that triad that we're working with of eights, nines, and ones, then if you have all three, then we, we have a group of people who have different gifts who receive information maybe in the same way, but who process it differently. And then there's an array of possibility for how to address the concerns of the group, as opposed to one possibility that might or might not be successful. Thanks, Suzanne. This is all super helpful and and such a great way to think about the the way we work differently, the way we interact differently. and the way we respond to these different challenges and needs is that example of, of, you know, someone coming and needing some food at church and we all respond differently and they can all be beneficial. We can all learn. We process it differently is super helpful. I wonder if pulling back slightly, you mentioned the word balance in your, uh, in the subtitle of your book and thinking if you pull back, so not for specific numbers, but generally, how do you think about the balance that um, that we should be striving for or maybe that we're, we're created to enjoy or, you know, there would be different ways we could s- say it. But is the balance here thinking of mostly the doing, thinking, feeling? Is it the balance of how do we organize our lives, uh, you know, between uh, family and work and these other demands and stresses that we face. You just talk a little bit about the word balance and how you think about it and what do you think we're, we're kind of called to when it comes to balance in our lives? Sure. Um, the first thing that I think we have to balance is work and rest. Um, Joe and I started Sabbath keeping maybe 20 years ago and uh, we read a wonderful article by Eugene Peterson who suggested that when you start to keep Sabbath, you need to know that half of the day is for playing and half is for praying. And Joe and I didn't have any trouble with the praying half, but we weren't very good at playing. Hmm. And we've raised four children and we, uh, you know, we thought we kind of had our arms around that. But it turned out that actually we didn't. It's interesting to have this conversation during pandemic times because my answers might be somewhat different if we had had this conversation three years ago. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that um, the reality of the imbalance in the three centers of intelligence in thinking, feeling, and doing means that we are using two of the three centers to make our way through the world and we're 
as a result. We're pretty tired all the time. And we're not using either one of the two that we're using for its best possibilities because they kind of trigger each other because of the lack of the third. And so in my book, because Enneagram is primarily my teaching tool for the things that I teach, Mm -hmm. I talk about the fact that we need to learn to use each of the three centers, thinking, feeling, and doing, for its intended purpose. And when I try to substitute feeling for thinking, then I end up responding to everybody who's in front of me. I automatically know if they're hurting or not, and I usually know what would make them feel better. The problem with that is that that's an unending road to be on. And the greater problem is that when I find myself in the middle of taking care of everybody else, the people that I am committed to first, my husband, my children, my grandchildren are often the ones who suffer the most. So I think we have to begin to talk about priorities and how we learn to name our priorities and how we know how to evaluate priorities, making space for change. And um, that requires some rest. And it requires a break from the unending work that we do, whether or not it has to do with our profession. Hmm. Well, Suzanne, as you were sharing there about how can feel unending and one of the things that also really stood out to me as you were sharing there was about how you said that um, had you been asked this maybe three years ago before the pandemic versus now how that may have changed your answer you know for a lot of people I think the pandemic has been you know not just a time of grief or abnormality but in some instances even an experience of trauma or maybe it wasn't the pandemic maybe it was a horrible accident that they've been through or, you know, the list can just go on and on. But how do you see trauma impacting our Enneagram types? Well, that's a very interesting question because I've just begun a new think tank. And my next work is going to be around the Enneagram and moral injury. Oh, wow. So uh, in a year, I'll have a better answer <laughs> than the one I'm going to give you right now. <laughs> But um, let me just say that the Enneagram in its wisdom addresses the possibilities for us to be healthier and it connects us by the lines that are observable on a visual Enneagram when you look at it to uh, opportunities to adopt behavior from other personality types that are particularly helpful when we're stressed. The other thing that's real important for me to say before I give a direct answer to your question is that um, it's trendy Enneagram time right now. And those of us who have been teaching for a very long time thought that this time might come. But the Enneagram is a spiritual wisdom tool. It's not a party game. And you can't learn it by taking a... 25 question test or by answering questions about what kind of costume you would wear for Halloween. (laughs) 
And um, the thing that most people have no idea about is that your Enneagram number is determined by your motivation, not by your behavior. And so um, it gets us all in touch with what motivates us to do the things that we do, whether or not they're the right step to take or the wrong step to take. And uh, I don't know the question. <laughs> so can you repeat the question so I can sure. file that letter um, for you? How does trauma impact our Enneagram type? There you go. Thank you so much. So um, I do a lot of work with in hospitals, and I work with um, chaplains, but I also work with physical therapists. And um, if the three of us are all three different numbers and we happened to be in physical therapy from being in an accident, each of us would be motivated differently to do the hard work of physical therapy. And if you've experienced trauma uh, in some kind of, or as a result of some kind of abuse, then you still are motivated the same way. Um, and so an example would be what motivates me as a two is that I want to hear and believe that I'm wanted. Mm. And um, so if I was in a terrible accident, I would need to hear and believe that even if I wasn't able to fully rehab, the people who loved me the, the most before the accident would still want me after the accident. That's how a physical therapist would get me to do the work, the hard work of physical therapy. But that's how uh, a psychologist would get me to do the hard work of talk therapy. And that wouldn't work for my husband, who's a nine. It wouldn't work for my daughter, who's an eight. It wouldn't work for my son-in-law, who's a one. So I think the Enneagram, when it's understood well, is respectful of our difference. And it ceases to, to try or to insist on sameness. And it kind of throws things up in the air where we have to ask more questions than make statements. And we have to get to know people uh, and how they see the world and what makes them want to get up every morning if we're going to be able to help them get through whatever experience has affected them. And it's just not easy. Um, I'm 71. I was a foreign exchange student uh, when I was 16, and I was sexually abused by the men in the family that I was living with as an exchange student. And I still have to go to therapy every once in a while to work through the, the reality that that doesn't mean that I'm not wanted as I am after the abuse. And as much as I was wanted before the abuse. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to say thank you for sharing that and knowing that that has to be really a hard thing to talk about. So thank you for, for opening up about that experience with us. Sure. I, I, you know, I think we're all wounded, all of us. 
I think it's a big mistake when when we assume or believe that our wounds aren't as serious as the wounds of the person next to us or God hasn't moved in as in as big a way in our life as God's moving in somebody else's life. I, I think all those things need to be taken off of the table. And we just need to know that as God's children, we we are all seeking wholeness and we each have something to offer one another in in our journey toward finding that wholeness. But we have to meet people where they are, not where we are. Mm-hmm. And I know that that part of your focus is uh, looking down the road, not just helping the person that's right in front of you. And I know that that you know that that means some of our systems have to be changed. Some of our processes for evaluating things have to be changed. And I must tell you, as a 40-year educator using Enneagram wisdom, I think it helps in ways that you might not even imagine because it um, is the one thing I know that anybody, I, I can stand up and teach a Know Your Number workshop for eight hours, which is helping people figure out what number they are. And when they get there, I say, you know, I'm pretty good at what I do, so when you leave today, you'll probably know your number. But you might not. But the one thing that I can guarantee will happen to all 200 of you, or for all 500 of you, or for the 12 of you, is that you will leave more compassionate than when you came. And I think when we get too focused and we put all of our compassion on the person on the side of the road who needs our help, we lose our focus about who might need us next week. And we really lose our focus about how in the world we're going to be good enough to one another that our relationships don't distract us from our call on the journey. Thanks, Suzanne. That's such a great, great vision for the, the, the now and for the long term and growing in compassion. As you were just sharing about that and then Jamie's question about trauma, I want to ask you one more question and we'll, we'll transition into our, our final five questions. Um, thinking of people who are listening, people, the students we work with, some of the people you mentioned, do you know of resources or people um, that are doing the Enneagram with populations, you know, that are under more stress. And, you know, some, sometimes this sort of work can be more accessible to those of us who have more time, like sort of middle class and others. But I was thinking about refugee populations or other prisons or other different areas. Um, so you could tell us a little bit about what you've seen the Enneagram do in those situations. And also as a resource, are the people who are listening who might be working uh, with some of these populations and, you know, hear a story or know about a specific resource that would help them in the kind of justice work they're doing? Uh, sure. Um, I think that it's important that people do good, basic Enneagram work. And then 
use their life experience and their personalities to move for forward into whatever other work they're doing. So uh, there's a woman who spent a year studying with me and my cohort who uh, works with refugees in Abilene, Texas. And what she did is she began to compile a list of questions that were particularly suited for the population that she was working with. And those questions all had to do with Enneagram stances. Enneagram stances are not triads. Triads are determined by which is dominant, thinking, feeling, or doing. But stances are determined by which is repressed, thinking, feeling, or doing. And you can pretty much, if you know the Enneagram well, you can do a pretty good job with people you work with by figuring out what stance they're in. And once you do that, then you know that the best way you can help them is by encouraging them to bring up their repressed center, which will either be thinking, feeling, or doing. Because that's what achieves balance. And then with balance, people are able to address the reality of their history and the reality of their lives as it as they present in the moment. Um, I don't think it works for people to adapt somebody else's teaching. Uh, excuse me. I don't think it works for people to adopt someone else's Enneagram teaching. I think they have to adapt it to their own way of seeing. Otherwise, it doesn't quite come through correctly. So what I would encourage uh, your students to do is do basic Enneagram work. And of course, I'm promoting my own. Why wouldn't I? I think it's really good. (laughs) The road back to you is the primer and you Mm -hmm. will know your number or on my website, you can hear it all on MP3s. The Path Between Us is my second book and that has to do with relationships and the journey with other people. The journey toward wholeness has to do with balance and dealing with stress and our relationship to ourselves and our relationship with God. And if you do that work and then you read somebody like Miriam Greenspan, who wrote Healing Through the Dark Emotions, or if you read Kurt Thompson, who wrote The Soul of Shame and The Soul of Desire, or if you read Pauline Boss, who wrote Ambiguous Loss, then, uh, or, or if you read Greg Lavoie, who wrote Callings, then what you do is you are using your Enneagram wisdom and you're adding wisdom from those sources so that when you try to share it or teach it, it comes from inside of you mm-hmm. instead of from uh, your notebook. That's great. Thanks. That's really good advice on the approach of, of being a leader and an educator. So we'll ask our five quick questions um, to you here. So uh, we do this with all of our guests and also wanted to mention, we'll put um, your, the road back to you, your newest book, your website, all in the show notes. So uh, anybody listening can, can quickly get access to those great resources that you mentioned. Um, so five quick questions for you. The first question is, um, what is a book that you are currently reading that you're enjoying? Enjoying? 
<laughs> Enjoying uh, in the broadest sense of the word. Uh, good. What's the, that is good. Maybe I should have said uh, instead. <laughs> the moral injury workbook. <laughs> yeah, not not a beach read, read but enjoyment. I actually read that book, so... <laughs> Oh, that makes me happy. Oh, from the department, or from uh, used in a lot of the, with a lot of veterans and, and such. Oh well, I would love. Ooh, I wish we could talk more because I worked with veterans for four years using the Enneagram. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, it was. I, yeah, and the only reason I had to stop is because I, it, you know, it just got to a point where I couldn't do all things, and we discerned my little discernment community and me that. I needed to focus on writing. So, yeah. Well, I, I don't Jamie's know. A, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go. Oh, I just say Jamie is a psychologist and has a lot of, uh, has done a lot of focus and, and really leading work on trauma. So I think the two of you would have lots, lots to talk about on this. Well, I have a lot to learn. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, well, Suzanne, I don't know if you noticed, but when you said that you were thinking about moral injury, that's something that our team has been talking a lot about through the pandemic. And I think you got the first, oh boy, type of response from me ever during the interview. <laughs> so I was really, you piqued my interest with that for sure. So I can't wait for that new book to come out. Um, so another question that we have for you here on this kind of like quick five that we like to run through with folks is what's the book you've given away more than others over the years? Uh, over the last three years, the book I've given away the most is Ambiguous Loss by Pauline Boss. That's a great uh, book. I got to meet her right after Hurricane Katrina. She came and gave a talk to our community that had been impacted, and her words just have really stuck with me over the years. She's astonishing, isn't she? Oh, she's, she's just astonishing. It's one of those one of those wisdom people who you know. The ground is holy, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the book that I've probably given away most over the years is uh, "Lying Awake" by Mark Salzman. Okay, I don't know that one, so I'm glad we'll put that in the show notes, and I will be checking it out as well. Uh, next question is: Is there something you're using right now that's uh, you're finding helpful in life in the sense of, uh, is there an app, a productivity method, an approach to research as you are working on this next book, a travel product, though none of us need those quite as much these days. Um, but is there something that you're finding really helpful and practical in your life at the moment for getting done what you have to get done? Um, I'm a very visual person. And the most helpful thing I've done is go back to a paper calendar. Hmm. Nice. And what's maybe one recent thing you've been listening or watching that you've really enjoyed? (laughs) Oh, y'all, this is a weird answer, but it's honest. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like it already. (laughs) (laughs) My husband. Somehow in our work for a while, I just, uh, in supporting him at the church, he's on staff at a at First United Methodist Church Dallas, which is a flagship, flagship Methodist church, and he's busy, and I'm busy, and um, I, I just think he is such a good human being. And so I'm trying to not take for granted 
what he says or what he does or what he's reading or what he's talking about. Um, I'm trying to really pay attention to him and not interrupt and listen. It's a great answer. Um, good for all of us to hear as well. And then the last of these five questions, uh, you mentioned taking Sabbath and praying and playing being part of that. Uh, what is something specific that you do that you find renewing for your body and mind? Uh, rearranging furniture. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the United Methodist Church, you know, we're appointed by the bishop. Mm -hmm. And um, we lived in parsonages for a long time. We've lived in our own home now, I guess, for, I don't know, maybe 20 years. But raising our children in a parsonage, usually that was too small for us because we have four children. Um, I, I couldn't paint. I sometimes was raising my children on other people's furniture. And so the only thing I could do was move things around. <laughs> And um, I did that a lot, and I still do it. And I, I would say that I, um, we've been given many gifts over the years, and if somebody gives us a gift, we treasure it. So I've been curating our home uh, for the last, I don't know, 15 years in a way that it is a reflection of, who we are and who we love and who has loved us. What a, what a wonderful response. And, you know, before we go, for those that would like to learn more about your work, where could they find out more? SuzanneStabile.com will give you more of me than you could ever want. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for being with us and just for all the great wisdom that you've shared with us today. Thanks so much for having me. And, Really, I, I'm so impressed with what you're doing. Uh, count on my prayers. Oh, well, thank you Thank you, so you much. Suzanne. Great being with you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. I really enjoyed talking with Suzanne. As I mentioned at the beginning, um, I've not been as into the Enneagram as uh, maybe you have and some others have, but her wisdom came shining through, didn't it? And I really appreciated that. And especially, I'm left thinking about the the kind of responding with our emotions and with our thoughts and with our actions and the way that ties into uh, what we talk about here, which is how we can keep seeking to be faithful and how we can keep seeking to do good better. So thanks. And may you be encouraged in the, the good work, the good action, the good thinking and the good feeling that you have in the rest of this day and the rest of your week. Learn more about the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, including our graduate degree and trauma certificate at the link in our show notes. You can attend the program online or in person and stay in touch. You can email us at producer at bettersamaritan.com. Thanks so much for bringing us along on your journey as we all endeavor to do good better.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.